but the, the, this, this stock, which doesn't meet X criteria, is going up a lot. And the stock that does meet X criteria is going down a lot. I want to know what I want to own that one, not that one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Investing City podcast, where the goal is to get better at investing, business, and life. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. It really means a lot. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. The following is presented for informational purposes only and is not investment advice. This information must not be relied upon in making any investment decision. Investing City cannot be held responsible for any type of loss incurred by applying any of the information presented. Furthermore, securities discussed in this podcast may be held by Investing City and members thereof. Thank you. So on today's podcast, we talk with Nick Dennis, who's a fund manager in South Africa. And this is an awesome conversation. We talk about wide range of topics from Tesla to philosophy of optionality and, and everything in between. We also talk about Snap and C Limited. So this one's jam packed with a bunch of really interesting information and a lot of companies. So enjoy this conversation with Nick Dennis. Okay, in today's episode of the Investing City Podcast, super excited to have Nick Dennis from Southridge Global Capital, who runs a sub-advisory of Anchor Capital. Um, so thanks so much for being here, Nick. Great pleasure. Thanks for, thanks for having me on. I'm a fan of the podcast. <laughs> thanks so much. Um, so why don't we jump in with a little bit of your background and, and sort of your evolution of your investing. Um, it seems like you've had... Uh, a big evolution. So let's just kind of start with that. Yeah. So, um, so I'm from, uh, I'm from South Africa. I live in, I live in Cape town, but, but grew up in the city of Johannesburg. Um, and my dad used to run a, run a public company called tiger brands. So it was a really a consumer focused company. So fast moving consumer goods. And I think, uh, through him, like, so he, he would show me the, the newspapers on a daily basis and, Show me, try to explain things like PE ratio and all of this other stuff. But I think what I also inherited from him was just a love of um, brands and uh, just really consumer facing companies. And that's like, he's from a marketing background and that's, that was what he was really into. Um, and he, I guess, you know, sort of seeped through the ether, like a sort of the, the focus on, he was very focused on re- return on invested capital, sort of margins, like all of that kind of good stuff. And then, um, so I, I studied a, a finance degree in South Africa, and then I did essentially what is like a uh, like accounting slash like auditing uh, articles for three years. And in South Africa, that's almost like, that's your route into business. I knew I wanted to get into business somehow, but I didn't know exactly what. And then um, I had a meeting with, uh, my dad introduced me to an asset manager, and he, ex- he explained to me what asset management is. And I thought, that's pretty cool. I could do that. Like, I knew I didn't want to do a whole lot of other stuff. But I thought that would be really um, interesting because I like geography, I like economics, I like um, business. But I knew I didn't want to run, actually run a company and, and be an operator. So, um, so after I finished articles, I went to uh, I did corporate finance for uh, about 15 months. And then I moved to the UK. Um, my dad gave me a list of, of fund managers and analysts that he met over the years. So I just hit them up with, a, with an email saying, this is who I am. And I sent them, I sent them a bit of research on on stocks that I held, and so I managed to land a role at um, Pictet Asset Management in London, and uh, I, that was in the Emerging Equities team. And so they are, they didn't have someone covering consumers, so they said, "Look, you, you seem to have a natural sort of passionate interest for it, you know, have a crack." So I did, and so I was there for six and a half years. Um, that team was in sort of back then was had like very much of a traditional value focus. So it was more uh, like sort of low PE type stuff. Um, that's never really been me, and and particularly in the consumer and the sort of more internet type stuff, uh, I've always had more of a focus on like, quality and, and perhaps growth. So I think I helped sort of shape some of their sort of thinking over time. But um, look, that was that was always going to be more of a uh, of a sort of a value portfolio. So after six and a half years, um, really, I had three kids there. And then I wanted to raise them in South Africa, and uh, and I wanted to I wanted to start a fund, um, and so I partnered with a firm, Anchor Capital, 
and we launched a fund in March 2015. I think when I started, it was I, the portfolio had more of a traditional kind of growth at a reasonable price kind of flavor. And then some of my kind of uh, old favorites from my Picte days. So I had some sort of EM names from Russian retailers, which, which had been rock stars for ages, and some Chinese autos, which had been rock stars. Um, they weren't rock, rock stars for much longer than that. But I think, so I had more of a kind of, yeah, so they found it more of a garpy kind of flavor with, with some more kind of out and out growth names. I could put, put um, stuff like Facebook and, and Amazon in there relatively early days when they were uh, sort of a lot more, uh, I think this was, this was early on in the sort of AWS kind of time. So it was a bit, Amazon was perhaps more controversial then than it is today. Same thing with, with, with uh, Facebook, which much higher multiple five years ago. Um, and then I think what I, what I sort of learned over time is, you know, perhaps I think my strength is finding, I guess, more unorthodox stocks um, and names that aren't necessarily traditional GARP growth at a reasonable price. Um, they might look like growth at an unreasonable price, but I found some of these things that I thought were just too expensive would go up 10x, you know, like Shopify, for example, or, or, or Netflix or, or, or whatever. So I really felt like I'm, I'm really missing something here. Um, just with a traditional kind of GARP approach. And so over time, I've, I, I think I've evolved to more um, unorthodox situations where maybe the, what's happening beneath the surface is, is there's something really interesting happening, but it's happening beneath the surface. And it's not obvious from the, from the sort of headline financials. So that requires digging deep and thinking uh, a lot further out and maybe thinking, focusing more on what's happening in the terminal value, which might seem sort of controversial or um, that would make a lot of people and a lot of investors uncomfortable. So that's, that's kind of where I've graduated to um, over time. And I think it's made a real difference. Mm. I'm, I love you talking about the unorthodox investments. So if somebody was trying to improve at that, what would be some things that you would suggest they do or, or some ways that they change their thinking? So, so practically, you know what is a game changer? So one thing that I, I've never recommended to anyone before, but I would say um, find, take the five stocks that you think in the market are the, like, just the craziest, the most overvalued stocks that make no sense, like, a, like Snowflake. So I, don't, I, I haven't done work on Snowflake, but it's like 150 times revenue or whatever. Take Tesla, you know, it's five stocks, whatever, and buy one share of each. And, and say, I'm going to hold them for three to five years. And, and, then, and, then, just, and then just revisit them in, 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 say, in, in three to five years. You know? And at least you'll learn something from that. Look, obviously don't, what I would say is companies that you think have, the starting point is not just pure craziness, but it's companies with like a really good product or good management team or the kind of stocks where you say, um, love the products, love the company, but it's too expensive. And whenever, like a simple kind of rule of thumb is whenever I find myself saying that, um, it's almost always being a, a, a buying opportunity. Like whenever you find yourself saying, love the company, but too expensive, um, I mean, you've you got, you got to look twice. And I, I, I know people who are saying that with, with Snowflake. I was looking on, on Twitter and, and people were like, great company, too expensive. And I was like, man, this is, this is probably a buying signal. But I didn't buy it because, uh, I don't know, reasons. But um, so I would just say, like, just to, there's something about actually just taking the first step that's super powerful. Even for me, like a few years ago, just buying Netflix when people say, oh, crazy, makes no sense, or Amazon. It just, just that act of owning it is just like transformative, just transforms your thinking. Because, cause, like, I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of kind of dogma in investing and almost like moralism. And you feel like if you buy this expensive stock, like, somewhere Ben Graham is weeping or Warren Buffett is, is just disappointed with you or he's going to be angry. <laughs> so, but you, you know, what you'll find is you'll buy these things and, um, and they'll go up and they'll go up and they'll go up and they'll go up and, and, and you, might, you might learn something. Or if you will come back in, in, in three to five years and they've gone down and then you can say, well, I was right in the first place and 
and you can pat yourself on the back. But at a minimum, there's a good chance you'll learn something. But, uh, but the starting point was, okay, so yeah, find crazy companies. Uh, but also, yeah, companies where you actually like the product. I think the product is key. Find something where there's something really interesting going on and just buy the stock. That would be a starting point. I love that. <laughs> the ghosts of Ben Graham coming back to haunt you. <laughs> I think that's so true. There is sort of this moralism. Um, but I also love that idea where if you own something, you already have the endowment effect, you know, affecting you. Um, so you sent me over some principles, uh, I mean, some materials already. And I, I want to talk about this concept of proxies versus principles that you talk about. Um, so why don't you just give some more thoughts about that? Yeah, so what I mean by that is I think we, we use proxies as kind of a, an oversimplification or as a substitute for kind of um, truth in investing. And it can be like, so what is a, what is a, what is a good company? So, so it's, it's like proxies are like return on invested capital or margins or, um, you know, cash flow, free cash flow conversion, stuff like that. Now, on the face of it, you know, if you've got a high return on invested capital or decent high margins versus peers or strong cash flow generation, uh, typically that, that does show that it's a good company. But it doesn't really tell you, doesn't really tell you the why. Um, what you can also have is you can have a company that has high return on invested capital because they're murdering someone else in the value chain. So like either they're killing their suppliers or they are hurting their, they're squeezing their customers. Um, and they're using, they're sort of over-leveraging their power in the supply chain. Now, short-term, that can be good, but long-term, it's, it's really, it's, it can be really, really bad. Um, and then the flip side is also, you can have companies that don't have good margins or don't have good returns on invested capital or don't have good free cash flow generation, but they're really doing the right things um, and creating a lot of value for other players in the value chain, like, um, like their customers. Um, and, and over time, and they're reinvesting in the product or they're sort of reinvesting in marketing or R&D and all of that stuff, um, which over time will lead to them capturing some, some share of value and, and, sort of, and, and the metrics are likely to be material, materially better in time. And so I think you've got to, you've got to peel, sort of peel away a couple of the layers and see like, so what is like, essentially what is a good company? So in my view, it's more a company that creates a, a great product that, that adds value to, to consumers and, um, and adds more and more value over time to, to consumers um, and society. And so that, that requires a different, different type of work or different type of analysis. And you've, and you've got to go, you've, you've got to go deeper and then perhaps you've got to also think um, laterally. And I think this, um, you can extend this sort of principles over proxy kind of idea to, 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 um, to other areas like, like, uh, you know, even, I mean, I think you can, you can sort of memorize things in investing like, um, like Porter's five forces or, or like names of mental models or whatever, but you don't always necessarily kind of, you can just kind of learn the sort of learn the sort of the label and, and the jargon and stuff without really understanding like what the essence of it is. And then sometimes those things can, can actually be counterproductive. Like even I'm not even sure how, how good sort of Porter's five forces is in the current sort of landscape, because it means like the, the idea of leveraging your power over, over like different parties within the value chain that sort of mindset, I'm not sure is, is kind of helpful um, uh, anymore. And, 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 you know, other, other ideas, like even um, these sort of oversimplifications, like you're back to the kind of the dogma and the sort of moralism kind of story, like this idea of Mr. Market, who's this irrational idiot, and he's always basically, he's, he's, he's stupid, and he just leaves money on the table. And like, maybe that was a useful construct I don't know, at, at various points in time, but it's just, I just don't think it's a helpful way to think about the market uh, on an ongoing um, basis. So, I mean, yeah, you can apply this in, in multiple different ways, but it's just, I think 
it's always about like really trying to go towards what is the what is the truth and, and like in some ways investing is kind of a, is like a search for truth in a sense um and it's about yeah peeling away the layers and all the superficialities and and, and the kind of the broad simplifications that um that 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 can actually be misleading in a way yeah that's really interesting so i'd love you to talk a little bit more about assessing the value chain so you mentioned that really the purpose of uh, or like a good business is just how much value it creates for you know all the parties around it so how, what is your actual process for ferreting that out and, and figuring that out so, so so part of when i look at the company is um so i've got a you know the whole research process and the research note and there's a sort of broad simplification as well like what's the what's the what's the thesis in in kind of in two sentences and what's what's the kind of the, the big idea and then and then i've got a separate section where i go into a lot more depth where i say um like what is the what is the what is the product what does it do uh, what kind of what's the job to be jobs to be done that it solves for people um and uh and then you know and, and then the questions around like what's the total addressable market what's the what's the management team uh, and, and kind of all of that thing but like, where i think Something that's where the portfolio is actually tilted towards more more recently, and as a kind of coming out of COVID, um, and it's just this sort of big idea that I've been that's been growing on me is like this idea of um, so I really like marketplaces just because I think they they create the potential for everyone or the opportunity for everyone to win, not the guarantee. So so. Just because you're a seller on Etsy doesn't guarantee that you're going to do well. You also need to have a great product, but they provide a platform for you to to sell your stuff. And so, uh, yeah. So roughly about half of the half of the portfolio is is uh, enables small businesses, um, and I think that's going to be kind of a really powerful idea over the next however long. I think what's happening, um, kind of. Globally, and what I think COVID is in this last sort of nine months has sort of woken me up to is this idea of you've got these global platforms providing enterprise level tools and distribution to individuals and small and small businesses um, to have sort of unprecedented reach and unprecedented tools. And I think that wins for, for the platforms like, like Fiverr, which you covered last week and which is in the portfolio, um, and Etsy and Shopify. You know Amazon, these these kind of companies. Now, yeah, as I say, is everyone guaranteed to win? No, um, but it, you know it it it, it can be it, it's you can you can get a kickstart in your business. You can sell on Etsy. Over time, you can create your own shop on on uh, via Shopify. You can have another. You can sell via Pinterest or Instagram. Instagram. It's they create these scenarios where I think you know logically most players in the value chain um, can win. And then the same is true, I think, in this, um, these sort of uh, developer first, like uh, sort of for developers by developers kind of companies like, um, like, like Twilio. So I think there's, there's lots of, um, there's, there's, there's just lots and lots of uh, more and more examples of that kind of thing going on. And I think you, you see in the language that the way that the company talks about the developers or or their customers, or their, or this, or the merchants. Which I mean, Shopify is, is a is a great example of that. They're very, very clearly they're always sort of merchant first. Amazon is always like customer first, and you see that coming, kind of through, quite clearly. Um, but, but it's it, it's really it's really um, baked into the business model, that 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 that's that sort of ecosystem where we sort of multiple parties can win. Yeah. I love that. Um, so it might be fun to transition to some names and then we can talk about your process more through that. Um, so two companies in particular that I would love to talk about are, are Snapchat and Tesla. Um, just because a lot of people might think of those as, you know, like the Robin Hood stocks or, you know, the people um, won't really take those seriously. But I, I love that um, they're in your portfolio. So maybe let's start with Snapchat and then we can move to Tesla. So how did you hear about it? What was kind of your process or your evolution of actually adding it to your portfolio? So um, I don't know if you can tell, but it's, um, 
Snapchat is really aimed at a slightly younger demographic than, than me. <laughs> and so I think Snapchat, had, as, well, Snap as a company, had kind of dropped off my radar um, entirely. Um, and then I came across an article, I think, by Packy McCormick of, of the Not, Not Boring blog. And so he, he sort of painted quite a vivid picture of the, of the company. And then I think um, Turner Novak on Twitter has mentioned it a few times. So, but I think Packy's sort of, his, his note really kind of opened my eyes again. And I thought, okay, this is, this is really, this is, what's happening here is quite, it's quite interesting. And it was also interesting because I thought, you know, dudes my age and like guys like me kind of dominates the, the finance land, landscape. And so guys like me are probably going to be very late to the game and something like this. So that, I think that creates almost a, a structural um, opportunity. So I looked, at, I looked at Snapchat and the, the headline metrics are, are a mess. Like the cash flows are, aren't great. The margins aren't great. But I think what, what was happening is that like, things are moving in the right direction. So they're growing their, they're growing their users around the world at, at, at a fairly rapid clip. And they've got uh, sort of roughly, roughly 90 million users uh, in North America, which is really, it's, it's high relative to, to Instagram and, and, other, and other social networks. So I thought, and this is a very young kind of engaged um, audience. So look, the, the metrics are heading in the right direction in terms of revenue, ARPU, monthly active users. So what, what I also did was I downloaded the app and, um, and I played around with it with my kids. So my kids are also slightly too young. They're sort of seven, nine, and, and 11, but we messed around with it. And it's quite, it's, quite, um, it's quite sort of silly and it's quite fun playing with the lenses. And so it's quite um, engaging and interactive, whereas you know, a platform like Facebook is a lot more um, passive. You just kind of, or Twitter's got passive and you just kind of consume. So there was something kind of fun and different about it that I really liked. So in my mind, I thought, okay, this is kind of a central scenario where, and well, some, some other background is I think, I think for the longest time, I did, Facebook has just, has just murdered the competition, both sort of, um, you know, business-wise and as a stock. And, and so Twitter has just been, has just been a non-event for, for, you know, five plus years. And Facebook is just kind of one and one and one and one. And, and I, I think I'd almost kind of dismissed, I'd almost taken it as a given that that, like, that, it, that that would just continue. But I think what you've seen since it's sort of over the course of the pandemic is both Snapchat and Pinterest um, have really shown an improvement in their ARPUs and, and, and are still growing rapidly. And I think what's happening is that uh, it comes down to this idea that, that Evan Spiegel has spoken about is transitioning from a product to a business, which is, which is not easy. And I think, you know, Snapchat and Evan Spiegel had made a number of mistakes over the years. And, and how can you blame him? He's young. It's his you know, first business. Um, and so people had, I guess, had kind of written them off. But in that sort of, they, they've made mistakes with the product and the business. But over time, they've, they've sort of corrected their mistakes. They've learned from them. And they've improved both, both the product the, that, that users see and then also the, the kind of the ad tech stack kind of behind the scenes. And, and I, think, I think Pinterest has done the same thing. So you, they still, they're still, I think, quite a long way behind um, Facebook in terms of the solutions that they provide. But in terms of the, the, the sort of cost per impression, there's still a huge gap there, which I think can, can close, you know, not fully, but, but, but that can certainly be improved over time. So, so your central case is, okay, They've got a, roughly 250 million users around the world. Probably that grows because they've been doing a, a really good job and, and they're improving the products um, internationally. Like they and Pinterest are, have been miles behind um, Facebook in investing in global markets. And they're only, they're only doing some of the basic stuff today. And they only fixed their Android platform, which is big in the rest of the world, like over the past few years. Like it's really, really basic stuff that they're only starting to get right lately. So I think there's a natural tailwind there. And, and so your base case is actually they improve they improve ARPU and they, they carry on growing monthly active users. And, and actually, as they improve, this will become a better business over time. Your return should be yeah, pretty good, but, but not necessarily spectacular. I think where, where it gets 
really quite interesting is if you look at what they're doing with um, augmented reality and the lenses. And again, they've created this, this platform through Lens Studio where um, either users or third-party developers can build their own lenses. And so it starts as like, and, and this is, I don't know where the saying came from, but it starts as almost like a toy. And then people just build, 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 and they provide the Lego blocks to people. And then it creates, becomes something more kind of interesting and, and sort of uh, the, the use cases should pro proliferate over time. And they're just sort of starting to scratch the surface of, of what's possible with an e-commerce. So you hold up your, your phone and you can see what a pair of um, the new Nikes look like on your feet or you, I know like Etsy, for example, holds up, you hold up your phone and you can see like a, a, a picture, what it would look like up in your wall. Um, and so, so who knows where this could go? And then, then they kind of, so, they, so there's that element, which I think is, is super, super interesting. And that, I mean, who, you know, who knows where the, what the use cases could be. And then you've got the other stuff like um, the Bitmoji and the avatars. And so you're starting to get into this kind of, I don't want to use the word metaverse, but sort of digital, digital space and, and what you can do with that. And, and, they, and they, they're sort of allowing those kind of the, the AR and the, the Bitmojis to port, not just in, 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 across into other platforms. How they monetize that and what they do with that in the end, I'm not sure, but, but we'll have to see. And then they're doing other stuff. They've got the media content on there. They've got maps. Um, and, uh, what is it? and then they're starting to integrate games and sort of in-app games. And then the final thing is the kind of the, the sort of mini apps. So they've got like a Headspace app, which you access um, in Snap itself. And what was interesting to me is I looked at all of this and said, this reminds me a lot of, of the Tencent strategy. So Tencent is, a, is, is, is an investor in Snap. Whether they've had an influence in, in this strategy, I'm not sure, but it's really quite, uh, it's quite reminiscent of, 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 um, of Tencent's strategy with, 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 with WeChat. So if they are able to, so you've got this, this sort of, Base case idea where they get to quite interesting. Probably stock probably does quite well. With one scenario, and, and it's difficult to know what sort of probability to attach that, but one scenario, with, if they're able to execute on this, this whole super app idea, then I think, that, I think there's going to be monstrous upside in the stock, you know, because the RP is just going to go up. Like it just, it just goes from being a sort of a fun kind of camera app to who knows what the use cases could be. Um, I, I think they're, st they're still missing a kind of a really good kind of integrated payments piece. And I think that could be the kind of the key to, to unlocking a lot of this. Um, but we'll see. And so, I mean, you know, when I, with the way I construct the portfolio is I'm fairly, um, I reach a, a certain level of conviction. But, you know, I, I, what I typically do is go in kind of roughly equal weight. Um, and so, like, if it's going to be in the portfolio, it goes in roughly equal weight and then every then each stock has got to prove itself and the winners will rise to the cream will rise to the top and then the others will uh, won't because because i found i think an issue that i had with us you, you can tend to sort of underweight the highest potential stocks because they seem the riskiest riskiest and you just miss that one and it makes it can make all the difference to your portfolio because I'm really looking for multi-baggers. I'm looking for stocks that can increase sort of multiples of their, of their current size. So, so anyway, so, I, so, so, so that's what I did with Snapchat, sort of gradually got it up to, up to that level, roughly equal weight. And I was kind of, you know, I've got a base level of, of conviction, but I'm, I'm somewhat agnostic. I'll say, let's see how this plays out. You know, let's give it time. Let's give it rope. And if they don't execute, well, then I can always change my mind. But I, don't, I certainly don't go in there saying, you know, this... I'm certain of anything. Um, you know, I'm, I'm somewhat agnostic. Like, let's let's see. I like it. Let's see how this plays out. And, and so that, that that was my thinking with um, Snapchat. And um, I mean, yeah. So far, I've been really positively surprised. Um, and then the one thing that I noticed from that's really come out strongly, which I'd never really picked up before, was the power of the um, the direct response model and direct response advertising, which you saw the power of that during the the pandemic, I mean, for, for Snapchat and then for Facebook too, um, which is just a, like a really, so a lot of these platforms that, that I spoke about, the sort of the marketplaces where you've got this kind of, uh, where the, the whole ecosystem can win, there's like an inbuilt 
um, flexibility and responsiveness. So like in, in Etsy, for example, they said, um, guys, there's a lot of demand for masks, like make masks, you know, so they made masks. Um, and the same is true for, for, for direct, this is direct response ads, like as demand from sort of large brand advertisers comes down, then it sort of lowers the, the cost per impression and then sort of apps or, or games or, or whatever can, can kind of come in and bid for that. So that's another thing I like, where there's just a, an inbuilt flexibility and responsiveness um, within the platform. And so, so Snap, has, Snap has got that. So I think it's interesting. Um, it's done well, but you know, I think, I think there could still, be, could still be quite a long way to go. Yeah, thanks for breaking that down. Um, so one thing that I notice about you is just your ability to really stay open-minded about things and, you know, talking about that, that moralism or, you know, if I add Snap to the portfolio, I'm not afraid of, you know, changing my mind. So are there any practical tips that you would give to people that are maybe trying to improve their open-mindedness? Or do you think that is, you know, um, something that, that is just like almost genetic? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I, I think I was less open-minded before. And then you, if, if you are, I think, it, I think it also depends on what, what you want out of the market. So I think there's a, in one of the market wizards books, um, I think it's William Eckhart says like, everyone gets what they want out of the market, which is quite a profound statement if you sort of unpack it. So you've got to decide um, do I want to be, is my, is my reason for being in the market to be an XYZ investor? Am I here to be a like value investor? Am I here to be a growth investor? Am I here to be a mini Warren Buffett or the next blah, blah. Or you say, is my, is my goal to generate returns? And those two are not the same kind of, they're, they're not the same. So if you frame things frame it as your goal is, look, my goal is to make returns. Uh, then you've got to work backwards from that and say, okay, what is, what is, what is, um, what is, you know, what do I need to do to, to make returns? And so I, I've just, like, I found over time that a lot of those uh, traditional frameworks and ways of looking at the world and ways of looking at the market were you know, provide, didn't provide the kind of returns that I, that I wanted. Um, and so I was, I was like, you know, I believe X, but the, the, this, this stock, which doesn't meet X criteria, is going up a lot. And the stock that does meet X criteria is going down a lot. I want to know what, I want to own that one, not that one. And so, look, that's been the case, that's been the case for me. And it, it hasn't necessarily been... I can't, I can't say that that is true for, for everyone else, but if it is true for me, it's probably true for, for other people too. Um, other thing I'll say is, so if the first thing is to just be aware of it and just be aware of the role that this, your sort of existing beliefs, uh, your investing beliefs play, because it, you, we all think that we're objective and we view the world objectively, but frankly, we actually, we all look through these glasses and you kind of, you almost see what you are taught to see or in a way that, that, uh, that kind of meets your beliefs. That's how you filter it. So if you're like a sort of a deep value guy, you look at Snowflake and you say, well, well, obviously everyone is just stupid and just high on fed juice and, and, and like blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so, which, 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 uh, which, well, look, it might be true. I mean, it, it could, yeah, I mean, it could. So, but, but, but maybe there's another truth. And the, the guys who own Snowflake, the, I mean, they're not stupid. They know that it's on 150 times sales. And, you know, they, you know they, they're buying the stock. And so the, the first part is just being aware. And um, I think, but if you start with this, the idea of like, what do I want out of the market? Um, I, want, I want stocks to go up, basically. And the more they go up, the better. And then you find stocks that meet that criteria and you open your eyes to what's actually happening, not what should be happening or what, you know, what has XYZ school kind of taught me. So I found that helpful. Um, and I think one key is just to experiment. You know, it's 
just experiment. Uh, you don't have to do it in a big way. But um, I think experimentation and, and making, making mistakes is quite, is, is very important. Um, that's how we move forward. You know, I, th I think, yeah, you don't want to be, you, you don't want to be sort of too risk averse, too cautious, too dogmatic. Um, and the other thing is, I think you want to approach the world with, in an, in an optimistic, with, in, with, with, as an optimist. The more optimistic you are, the more you just open your eyes to a world of opportunities out there. Um, and, and I think you want to, yeah, you want to be a bull, like you want to be a believer, you know. Um, and, and, and the maths just works out too. It's if you're wrong on a stock, okay, you lose. Look, worst case is you lose 100, but it's unlikely that you're going to lose 100%. Like by the time the stock's down 50, you, you've probably worked out that you make, made a mistake. But if you if you find like a great, great, great stock. I mean, it can go up a thousand percent. It can go up twenty thousand. You know, ten thousand percent, twenty thousand percent. Like your ratio is like can be ten to one, hundred to one. So, you know, you really want to don't yeah focus more on really capturing that right tail. Like think, think, think big. You know, don't think too small. I don't know. Those are, those are a couple of thoughts that I, I think have helped me over time. Yeah, dropping a lot of wisdom on us. So, thanks. Um, so, uh, only because I've made a lot of mistakes, Ryan. <laughs> um, we talked about Snap. Uh, let's talk about Tesla. And I mean, this is probably the most controversial stock. I mean, it is almost like you said, gets back to like a moral thing. If you ever put something out on Twitter about Tesla. Uh, you can be sure that you're going to get <laughs> uh, a lot of comments <laughs> with very strong views. Um, so, I mean, I would love to, to hear your journey uh, about owning Tesla. Okay. So, um, yeah, please don't hate, hate on me, everyone. <laughs> Either way, I think, I think I'm going to upset a lot of people. So anyway, <laughs> um, so actually Tesla's, is as being just uh, I made a huge mistake with Tesla, like just monstrous. Like so, I was looking at it uh, maybe first, second quarter last year, and I thought this is really interesting. Um, I did quite a lot of work on it, and I thought there was really, really interesting asymmetry there, like I've described. So I thought, you know, maybe the stock goes down fifty percent. It's not going to go to zero. Like I didn't agree with those people. I think if it goes down 50%, then, then probably Google or Apple steps in and buys them up. You know, th 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 that's what I thought. But if it works out, I mean, this could be like, this could go up 10x or something like that. And so, so I, I, I saw that sort of asymmetry there. But I, I messed up because I thought, well, like, this is the problem. I went down that whole Tesla Q sort of rabbit hole on, on, <laughs> on FinTwits and stuff about oh no elon is this that and the next thing and the bad build quality and all this kind of stuff and i was like well i just i i don't i'm not sure that i have an edge here and um and at the same time he was doing all that un un so that all that sort of controversial stuff and um it just i just sort of, uh, just avoid it and, and and that was really a mistake because i think the the amount of asymmetry really trumps um trumps trumps edge like totally like there's an interesting um, there's an interesting paper by a guy called um, Richard Zeckhauser, I think, called Investing in the Unknown and Unknowable, and he really talks about going into these kind of murky kind of situations, essentially where others fear to tread and where people fear to tread, and it's really hard to assess the probabilities and the odds and and the payoff. But 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 if you can see something with a massive asymmetry, like you've you've just got to go for it, and and you can't be afraid of looking stupid. And, and, and one of his points was, if you don't look stupid from time to time, then you're just not pushing the envelope enough. And, and so anyway, I didn't push the envelope and, and the stock went up boatloads. But then like, and then I thought earlier, so I revisited the stock, um, actually not all that long ago, a couple of months ago. And I thought, um, you know, it was one of those situations where I thought like, you know, have I really missed this? Like maybe, I just thought, you know, just, just thinking like long-term, maybe Tesla could still be like 
Tesla could be to the two, 2020s what, what Apple and the FANG stocks were to the 2010s. Like I can just, I can see that scenario where, you know, it's still, it's still early, early days in terms of the EV markets, in terms of what they want to do with solar, um, you know, in terms of the battery technology, never mind um, autonomous and the autonomous fleet and, and robo-taxis and all, all of those kind of things. And I thought, you know, I think they've still just got, as I watched Battery Day and, and other stuff, I, I revisited my notes. I was like, you know, I think their competitive advantage relative to, to peers is just, is just growing and growing and growing. And I think because they're vertically integrated, like they're just solving a number of enormously, enormously challenging problems. And if you're a, sort of a legacy incumbent, essentially what you've done is you farmed out your whole, your whole supply chain. And, and what, the, what the sort of legacy automakers are, they're, just, they're largely assembly companies. So you've got hundreds of suppliers and then you're just assembly. Whereas, you know, you know, Tesla can solve part by part, piece by piece, like machine by machine, thousands and millions of small problems. Um, and this is, this is a cumulative sort of knowledge curve and learning curve, which, which, they've, which is like a decade long uh, advantage for them. So how do the incumbents overcome that? I just don't know, particularly when you when they're not um, vertically integrated. But I think um, the, the other kind of rule of thumb I have, or, or sort of point to kind of trigger myself, is saying if I already held the stock and I was up, you know, a million percent, and it was X percent of my portfolio, what would I be doing now? Would I be selling? And I thought there is no way I would be selling now. Like the financials are just really starting to come through nicely. Like you've got, you've got China ramping up, you've got sort of Giga Berlin. They're just going to be adding more and more um, plants, uh, factories over time. I mean, I, I, I still think it's early days. But then perhaps the, the, the sort of the, perhaps the insight or maybe unconventional way of looking at it, and this is very, very non-purist, but I looked at the supply-demand dynamic for the shares as opposed to for the company. And I thought, Think about the, supp the, the supply of Tesla shares. People who hold Tesla by and large are proper, proper believers. Like they, they are, I think they are very, very price insensitive. Like if you think of obviously Kathy Wood and, and Bailey Gifford and, and those guys, I mean, they are not sellers of the stock. They really, really buy into this kind of 10 year, 20 year vision. So, that, so they're not sellers. Um, and this was, this was before the sort of S&P inclusion. Um, and, and the guys who bearish kind of don't matter because they don't hold the stock anyway. Like they've sold or they're, they're not in there. And then I thought, how many funds, how many large cap sort of mutual fund managers own Tesla? I don't know. Maybe the number's 10%, 20%. And, and how many of those hold it in their top 10? Probably not many. Um, but with S&P inclusion... Um, that number's got to go up. Um, you don't want to be you don't want to be underweight a stock that's sort of doubling every year or goes up five hundred percent. And then you look at like you know a, a name that's sort of very comfortable to own. You'd be proud to present it to your your investors. You say like a, a Visa or a Mastercard or Microsoft. What a wonderful company! Great business, great margins, great returns on capital. I'm a safe pair of hands. Wonderful, you know. And I like those companies, but there's like probably 60 to 90% of managers hold that. You, do, you look at a sort of top tens, it's there. That all of those names are there. So Tesla's just got to go from like, I don't know, mid-teens sort of representation to, to sort of 25, 35, 45 at a time. That's a lot of incremental demand for those shares. And the other thing you think about is, um, so your S&P inclusion, so you've got all the, the passive funds, but then you've got funds that are benchmarked benchmark against that. That is a real source of demand. And then the other thing I thought of is like ESG and sustainability is just becoming a bigger and bigger and bigger phenomenon, and more and more managers are going to be um, assessed against that. And so I think Tesla could really be the poster child for the sustainability sort of clean energy movement. And so if you're an ESG or if you're a sustainability fund, like there's every reason that's going to be a massive holding for you because it's a large cap. Like a lot of these other things are, are really small and illiquid and it's just difficult to buy them. So, so, you know, as money pours into that theme, I think there's a lot of incremental demand for Tesla. And then you mentioned sort of Robinhood traders, traders. 
And so I've also got this thesis where I think sort of, I think there could be a lot of money to be made by following young uh, retail investors over time. And so the way these guys invest is they invest in, um, they invest in brands and companies that they really relate to and that they love and that they back. And they're not all doing sort of discounted cash flow analysis. Um, they are, they've got sort of, I guess, yeah, like sort of non, non purely financial reasons for owning these companies. And I think, I think these investors like, so obviously passive is growing, but I think retail investors could come back into this market, just sort of enabled by cash app and, and Robin hood. And, uh, they've made a lot of money early on in this, this sort of current bull market this year. And so that's going to give them confidence. And I think, I think they could actually be like, sort of contrary to conventional wisdom. I think they could be a source of kind of smart money. So they will buy, they're not going to own 50 stocks. They'll, they'll own a handful and they'll form these communities like the whole Tesla community. They will, they will probably end up knowing those companies better than the sell side or the buy side. They're just a narrow focus and they'll buy those stocks and eventually, and I think they'll be ahead of the institutions. The institutions are inherently conservative and they want proof before they do anything. Um, but that's like another source of essentially price and sensitive buying. And the thing with Tesla also is if the majority of the shareholder base is buying into like a kind of a 10 year vision, that vision and that terminal value is kind of neither provable or disprovable for almost 10 years. <laughs> so, you might not agree with it, but like this, you won't get clear evidence for a long time that you're unequivocally wrong about your bull thesis. But, but, but what is happening is they are selling more and more cars and they are making progress and they are making better cars over time. So I would say incrementally, you are getting more and more, um, more and more kind of, uh, evidence to, to support that, that thesis. So I know a lot of guys, won't want to hear that and they'll 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 sort of see that as a sign of me drinking the kool-aid maybe it is um <laughs> tesla's not my child um uh, uh, but i do hope like i really hope they succeed because a world in which tesla does really well and sells 20 million cars or 50 million cars is um i think it's good for everyone like i mean how can you not want them to succeed so you know will, will i be a shareholder the whole time who does but um i think i, I just see uh i just see a lot of factors kind of lining up um for the company and and for the stock and ultimately i hold the stock and and you can have you know and i i think that's something else like you can just say yes we hold companies not stocks i, I get that but i mean and, and you might rejoice and be buying all the way down as your stock goes down 99 percent but um that's not me. <laughs> so I want to get the company right and the stock right if I can. So that's, that's a sort of a highly simplified view of, of, of Tesla, but we'll see. Yeah, thanks for going through that. Um, that's an amazing quote. Tesla's not my child. Um, I, I think that really gets to the core of, of it. And I like how you differentiate between the company and the stock, actually looking at the supply and demand for the stock and, and sort of zooming out and, and uh, also being able to zoom in. Um, so, I mean, I'm really enjoying this. This hour has flown by. So do you mind doing one more stock um, and just kind of laying out the thesis? Uh, I'm, I mean, I've been loving it so far. Okay. Okay, let me just, uh, let's have a look at the portfolio. Um, so look, why not... I'm still looking at the going through the S1, which one I think I'd like to own. So we don't have to talk about this, but it's uh, Roblox. Um, I think that's a super, super interesting idea because my kids play it. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a few things on the, on the take rate that I'm not so sure about. But okay, yeah. So another stock that's just been, um, that's just been such a great winner um, and I still continue to believe in is, uh, is C. Um, in in uh, in Southeast Asia, so I, I, I think you hold it too, or you've recommended it to so the um, Southeast Asian uh, gaming and e-commerce company. And so um, again, so I got this idea. I think from I think Hayden Capital um, put up put up a really good research piece like 
uh, 18 months ago. Um, and uh, so I read that and I thought it was really quite interesting. And uh, look, see, at the time, I think, I can't remember when I bought it, but in the, like the low 20s, like a, a sort of a, maybe it was first, first or early second quarter last year. Um, and I thought it was maybe like a $10 billion EV or market cap or something. So I thought maybe this company becomes, uh, could become a sort of a $100 billion company in, in 10 years. You know, I, th I think that potential is there. And you see, fast forward, fast forward 18 months, we're almost there. So it's just, I mean, it just shows you kind of what's, what's possible. And, and I think it's more possible today than ever before, just, just given the, the sort of digital and global, uh, sort of nature of investing and I think why it's such an exciting time to be an investor just I think these things can scale at, at a faster pace than than you could ever have imagined so yeah so so what C had at the time was what I recognized was that they, they had this this mobile game called Free Fire which was doing phenomenally well and they were using that to to reinvest in the e-commerce uh, the e-commerce platform called called Shopee um, and obviously, both have been huge beneficiaries of of the uh, pandemic. Uh, what I would say is, uh, and and the bulk of my sort of valuation of where I thought the value l would lie was in the um, in the e commerce side. Like, because because also what I've noticed was, in the the sort of leading e commerce player in each kind of market becomes like the, the biggest or second biggest company in that market. You saw it with Amazon, and you saw it with Alibaba. And then sort of I applied the same logic to, to Mercado Libre because I also own Mercado Libre in the fund. And so I thought there's every reason to believe that this could happen with, with C. Um, so I've, I've been a believer in, in the e-commerce side and, and, and yes, it's loss making, but, but every metric, every quarter is just, just trending in the right direction in terms of like the loss per orders just kept on coming down. Um, just the, the, the growth in, in, in GMV, the growth in revenue. That that's all happening. Um, I've totally, totally underestimated their execution on Free Fire and the game. Like, I, they have done an unbelievable job. And so that whole game is, um, you know, that's that's like a you know sort of five hundred billion dollars of EBITDA. I think last quarter. So it's like a you know a two billion dollar EBITDA run rate. I mean, that is phenomenal. Um, and they've just done a, an amazing job of, of just localizing that game in each market and, and just innovating. And so, um, I mean, the stock, is, the stock has really done well, but, you know, there are, there are scenarios where, you know, as they layer on, as they sort of build out now the financial services on, and that's early days in that too. It's another one where you look at it and say, okay, well, initially I thought it could get to $100 billion and, and we're a stone throw throw from there today but who's to say this might become a 500 billion dollar company in time or or a trillion dollars and like a trillion dollars is the old 100 billion dollars you know it's just these numbers are just a different meaning these days so um i think there's there's a lot to be said for just uh just just sticking with these names as long as the company as long as the company executes and not sort of being too too fixed on like a, a target price or an exit point um, but there's so many of these opportunities out there. So I, I just think it's, a, it's just a really, really exciting time to, to, be, to be an investor. Totally. Um, so I'm, I'm sure a question that a lot of people <laughs> kind of in the back of their minds as they're listening to this, like, what about valuation? You know, so what are sort of philosophy? I mean, just even practically and philosophically, what, how do you think about these? Are you looking out and creating an earnings model or are you just kind of buying and, and holding um, as the, the thesis plays out? Just some few thoughts on that would be awesome. So look, the, the starting thought, thought would be that valuation or an obsession and focus on valuation has been unbelievably expensive in my career. It has cost me so much in terms of returns. Like it's just, it, it, it's just, it's just staggering. Like how, how much money has been left on the table and the opportunity cost. So, so that would be the starting point. Um, so I build models. Like I've got a model for, for C. Like I've got a super detailed model on like Roku and Mercado Libre. I think the real 
value in that is not so much what the model says, um, but it's it's more the process of going through through the line items and just understanding like how different things move together and 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 I, I guess just thinking about uh, you know how the stuff kind of pulls through. But um, I think valuation has become less and less an important part of my whole process. Um, and so, yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe it's, maybe, maybe today's the peak. Maybe it's, maybe I've got my come up and scumming and, and, um, and I've got to be punished for my recklessness. But I just think the great companies, look, I think if you're going to hold like a Unilever or a, or a Nestle or a JP Morgan, I think, so, you know, one analogy I thought of for, for, for Tesla and maybe Snowflake and some of these other things is like that, they're like rockets. And once a rocket leaves the Earth's sort of gravitational pull and it's out in sort of deep space, gravita gra gravity actually doesn't matter anymore. And so I think of gravity like valuations. Um, and again, please don't, don't hate on me on Twitter and stuff. Like, these are my view. Like, don't take it personally. But, uh, like, you know, if you're JP Morgan or Nestle or Unilever, like there's, there's, there's sort of some limit to, to what people will pay. Although even like when interest rates are now zero, like for a high quality company like Nestle or Unilever, I, I don't know. I think valuation could, could get really, really crazy. But like put that aside. Um, but once like once, you, once you've kind of broken away from, the, from gravity, like it, it's, just, it's just not a pull anymore. So like, and I'm, like, that seems to be the case with, with, with Snowflake. So these companies kind of break the rules. And the problem with a lot of these things is when the valuation starts making sense again in terms of free cash flow or PE or whatever, to a large extent, the story's over. Like a lot of the returns are sort of really tend to be like really front end loaded. Um, and by the time things sort of really make sense from a conventional perspective, the story's kind of done, like as a, from a stock perspective. So I never want to say like valuation doesn't matter, but just for me personally so you know everyone else you, you don't you can ignore this but <laughs> but it is it's I, I, just for me I, it's um i think sort of lessening the importance of valuation has has, has helped me um i don't know we shall see right um no it's super interesting and don't want to take up too much more of your time. I've been really enjoying this, but uh, a closing question is, are there any daily habits that have really contributed to where you're at right now? Um, coffee and wine, uh, right? <laughs> so I <laughs> start, my, start my day with a cup, cup of coffee with my wife, close my day with a glass of wine with my wife. So um, I think it is in, it's important to, to uh, get away from the, the screen and, and sort of not attach your entire persona and self-worth with your portfolio, which has been something that's been very helpful to me over time. But from a, like maybe purely investing perspective, like I keep a, I keep a journal. Uh, so I write down um, just, just thoughts on, on the portfolio, on the markets, on my own psychology, on my emotions, um, things I'm seeing, things I'm learning, mistakes I've made. Uh, and so that, that has been super, super helpful in my evolution as an, as an investor. Um, and it's, it's also, I think, you know, it can be quite sort of therapeutic at, at times. And I just find that the exercise of writing, uh, like a good way of thinking. So I sort of think through, through writing too, which is, so I find that really helpful and, and would recommend it to everyone. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I keep an investing journal as well. And a small heuristic for myself is, when the market is falling and I, I'm starting to get nervous, I find myself starting to write in capital letters. And when I start writing in caps, then it's time to buy. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay, interesting. Maybe I should do that too. Yeah. So, no, so in the same situation, I'm uh, curled, curled into a ball under my desk, sucking my thumb. So, not really. I'm joking. That's that's not true. <laughs> um, well, thanks so much for coming on, Nick. I, like I said multiple times, I've, I've really enjoyed this. So appreciate your time. Thanks, Ryan, and I hope I haven't too offended too many people. <laughs> no, I think it's good. <laughs> okay, have a good one.
Cool. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Investing City podcast. It really means the world to us. And before you go, we have a proposition. So please leave a review on iTunes. It just would help us out so much. And if you do so, just email us. I left a review and we'll give you a gift. That's right. We'll give you a gift if you leave a review. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you.